into which we were born. And we're going to look at the summary of Scripture we find in Lord's Day 3. Uh, but first I'd like to read two brief passages with you. The first is very brief, from Genesis 1, starting in 26. This is in the creation week, at the very end of the creation week. Starting in verse 26, we hear about the last work that God formed before taking His Sabbath rest. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And skipping ahead to verse 31, And God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now turning from there to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, well, it starts out with an introduction from Paul uh, explaining who he is, why he's writing, what his hopes are with regard to uh, the church in Rome. Gives a very brief summary of the gospel and its importance. And then starting in verse 18, he shifts gears dramatically. The church in Rome is a mixed church. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, there's division because of that. The Jews think that eh, maybe they're a little better, you know. And the Gentiles, they think they have their strengths as well. But he starts out by pointing out that we all start in the same place. And it's not a good place. Listen, starting in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's where we all begin. Lord's Day 3, summarizing that passage in particular and a number of others like it, asks, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer is no. God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God as creator, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Amen. Beloved disciples in our Lord Jesus Christ, Last week I pointed out that in order to diagnose a problem, in order to figure out what's wrong with something, it really helps to understand how it was designed to function. It's hard to diagnose an engine malfunction unless you understand how an engine is meant to work. It's difficult to see what's wrong with your oven unless you understand roughly at least how the systems within your oven work and work together. Only by understanding how things should work can we understand what has gone wrong when they don't work. But there's another bit of detective work that any aspiring handyman or mechanic or technician ought to undertake. Once you determine what's wrong, what component has failed, it's tremendously helpful to investigate why it went wrong, why it broke. Now, of course, without knowing that, you can still repair the problem. You can install the new part. You can adjust things until they're back in spec. You can cause that machine, whatever it is, to run like new. But if you don't know why it failed, it's likely only a matter of time until it fails again. It's possible that the component just failed, just happened. But it's equally possible that it failed because something else was wrong. Something else was causing it to fail. The brake parts, the brake pads wore out because a caliper slide was stuck and was causing it to fail prematurely. The mower belt broke because there's a loose bolt that was rubbing up against it. The vacuum motor fried because the vacuum was being misused. If you don't discover the underlying cause, you might fix the problem, but it's going to happen again very soon. Now, God's law enables us to diagnose our problem. It shows us the misery into which we were born and how we, from the start, hated God and hated man. That's the misery that afflicts us. That's the problem. But why? From where did that sin come? Were we made that way from the start? If so, why would God make us that way? And if not, if that wasn't original to God's God's creative plan, what happened? What 
brought us from how God made us to this misery into which we all were born. And if we manage to escape that misery, what's to prevent us from falling back into it? We really need to know the origin of the misery in which we were born. And Lord's Day 3 helps us with that. Revealing the truth of God's word that man's misery arose from the sin, through the sin of Adam. And so that's our theme. Man's misery arose from the sin of Adam. But we need to start at the beginning, before the sin of Adam, and see how we were created with perfect ability. Genesis 1. We read about God's final creative act before taking his Sabbath rest, the formation of man. He stated his purpose. Let us make man, he's speaking to himself, the Godhead communicating within itself, within himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God intended man to be his representative in ruling the earth. And therefore he determined man must be made like him. And so it was. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them and God blessed them. All that God decreed with regard to how man should be, he brought about. From the very start, man was to be unique, both in bearing the image of God and in serving as God's representative. And God made man in a way that equipped him to do it. But what's that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Kids, understand, that's not just a matter of how men were made to look, right? It's not about physical appearance. If you ask what God is like, He's not distinguished by appearance. God is a spirit. But He's distinguished by His attributes, by the, the, the way He is, the, the things that make Him unique. Theologians speak of the attributes of God falling into two categories. There are incommunicable attributes, that is, attributes that he doesn't share, characteristics that cannot be shared by creatures. So, for instance, God is uniquely characterized by his immutability, by the fact that he doesn't change. He is uniquely characterized by his infinity. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and in all places present. He is uniquely characterized by his unity. God is indivisible. And by his aseity, he is self-sufficient and depends on no one. Those are his incommunicable attributes. But there are also attributes of God that are communicable, that he shares to some degree with men. And that is where we find the image and likeness of God in man. For instance, we find that man has an independent will. Now, after sin, that will has been corrupted. But from the start, man was made with a, an ability of self-determination. In other words, at the start, he was not compelled in the choices that he would make. He was truly free. He could choose to do this or that or the other thing. He could determine what the choices were and make the choice that he determined to make. There was no outside compulsion. 
The image of God also to some degree is found in the intellect of man. Men were made to, to know and to learn, to ponder and to decide. We were to reflect God in his creative genius. Taking the, the world that he had made and all of its raw materials and using that to continue forming and molding and developing the world and thereby reflecting the work of God. Those are ways in which we reflect the image of God. But right at the apex of it all, as our catechism points out, the image and likeness of God is found in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is being able to know what is good and to do it. Holiness is being able to discern what is bad and to reject it. Together, righteousness and holiness is a matter of being completely and utterly devoted to God. And that's how Adam was made. He was truly righteous. He could understand what was good, and he had the power to do it. He could understand what was bad, and he had the power to reject it. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. For something to be very good in the sight of God, it has to be completely without flaw or defect. It has to be utterly and completely perfect. And that, my friends, was man at the start. There was no flaw, no defect, no chink in the armor. He was the, the acme of perfection. And therefore, he was qualified to have a relationship with God. When God put Adam in the garden, they were able to speak to one another as a man speaks to his friend. They could spend time together in the garden. And Adam had the capability of continuing in that role. He was able to continue doing whatever God had given him to do and to persist in avoiding whatever God forbade. And so when we come to Genesis 2, verse 15 there says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Adam could. He had the power, he had the intellect, he had the, the goodness to perfectly reflect the character of God in keeping the garden. To reveal to the world what God was like as he did the work that God had given him. And then verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. And he gives him that one command, right? You can eat of the fruit of any of the trees of the garden, but, but that one tree. You may eat that fruit. That one tree's fruit I'm going to withhold from you. And it wasn't because there was anything inherently bad of the fruit. It was that by this means, God would know the heart of man. God would determine whether Adam would be willing to devote himself completely and absolutely to the Lord. And again, there was no compulsion in Adam requiring him to do anything wrong. At the start, he had every ability, every capability of doing what God said. So that's how we started. Perfect ability. Man was able to know God. The, the world was like a book and man had the ability to read it and to see in the creation everything it said about God. Every word God spoke, man could hear it, could understand it clearly. In the cool of the day, Adam could walk with God with no distance between them. Not only could he know God, he could serve God. He had the strength, he had the ability, he had the will. He even had the ability to love God truly. Understand that. At the start, Adam had the ability to so love God 
that he would do whatever God said and thereby secure a perfect relationship with God for everyone who would come after. That's how Adam was made, and he knew it. Perfect ability. That's how we were created. But then man rebelled. By the action of Adam, by an action freely chosen, man rejected God. And that brought about two results. It brought guilt, the deserving of God's wrath, and it brought corruption, the transformation of man's nature. And that's what we need to focus on today is that corruption which Adam's sin brought. Because that's the soil from which our sins grow. That corruption is the root cause of our rebellion. So the second thing we need to see this evening is how we were conceived with a poisoned nature. Understand what the sin of Adam really was. It wasn't just a matter of eating the wrong thing, offending God by unworthy food. Again, that fruit of that tree, it was edible. But because God forbade it, because God said you may not, therefore it was poison, spiritual poison. Kids, you know that sometimes your parents do that, right? They'll tell you not to do something to see if you will. Because that's a good way of determining where you are spiritually. Because if you do that thing that they told you not to do, they know you're not trustworthy. And that's what God was doing with Adam. He said, you may not eat the fruit of that tree. Not because it was inherently bad, but because he wanted to see if they would devote themselves to him. If they would follow him unquestioningly. And Adam refused. He determined to set someone else on the throne. Instead of following God as his king, he would be the king. Instead of seeking to please God by his obedience, he would please his wife by his disobedience to God. Now Adam paid for his choice. Instantly he was cut off from communion with God. Cast, well not instantly, but very soon thereafter, cast out of the garden. The world became broken. Suddenly this world that was filled with perfection, it wasn't. In the midst of his crops would grow weeds. The work that was meant to be a delight would become toil. The beautiful communion that he had with his wife, suddenly they would be at odds. And at the end of it all, a sentence of death. So Adam's choice cost him dearly. But we too pay dearly for his sin. Because because Adam was our representative, when he sinned, we became guilty. So from the start, we deserve God's wrath. Because Adam acted on our behalf. We'll talk about that later. But we need to see that something else that happened because of Adam's sin, our very nature was changed, was corrupted. We see that in Genesis 5. Genesis 5 says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's how it was at the start, right? Adam was perfectly created in the likeness of God. He shared with God those communicable attributes But then verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And you see, his likeness was broken. His image was twisted. No longer was it a perfect image of God, but it was like a funhouse mirror that distorts 
the image of the thing before it. That became our starting point. And so into that image we were born. In Psalm 51 verse 5, David declares, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying his mother sinned, and it resulted in him coming forth as a child. Instead, he's saying that from his very earliest moments, before he even was born, he was corrupt, he was sinful, he was inclined to do what was evil. And it wasn't just a matter of what he would do. Jeremiah, uh, chapter... 17 verse 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it the heart is the seat of our emotions our desires our deeds the source from which everything else flows is rotten from the start for all of us that's the fruit of Adam's sin and so in Romans 8 Romans 8 is telling Romans 8 is in that part of Romans that talks about what God has done for us in delivering us. But in order to see that, the apostle pauses in Romans 8 and points out that there are two ways to live. By the flesh or by the spirit. And by the flesh is the way that we start out. Those who live by the flesh, according to the flesh, that means that they make their decisions. They choose their deeds on the basis of what will satisfy their appetites in the moment, right? Whether their appetites are to satisfy themselves with sweets or to gain approval in the eyes of men or to give themselves that that shot of dopamine by doing something daring and getting away with it. Well, in Romans 8... The Apostle says, and this is verse 7, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that's us at our earliest moments. We're hostile to God. We prefer to satisfy ourselves, to serve ourselves, to glorify ourselves, to put ourselves on the throne rather than God. And so we've made that choice. Instead of serving God, we're going to serve ourselves. Instead of serving the Lord, we'll serve the flesh. And therefore, in verse 8 of that chapter, he says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible for someone who is serving the flesh, for someone who is serving himself, to please the Lord. And that's the standing of all of Adam's offspring from the start. And so, chapter or verse 6 of Romans 8 says, To set the mind on the flesh is death. And that's our story from the start. The result, the result is what we saw in our reading from Romans 1. What Paul describes there is tragic and inescapable for the natural man. Because of the corruption that we inherited from Adam, men naturally suppress the truth. The world around us boldly declares that God exists that God is worthy of worship, that God is the one that we were meant to serve. The message is inescapable. It surrounds us in every cell of everything that is around us, including the air that we breathe. We see it. 
In our deepest parts, we understand that message. And yet, the corruption we inherited from Adam leads us to reject that message. We refuse to hear the the, the voice of the Lord. We close our minds from understanding. We shut our hearts against the wisdom of God. We suppress the truth, and that suppression ruins us. Rebellion. This, This is the point of this text. Rebellion, because of our suppression of the truth, our rebellion destroys us. It permeates every aspect of our lives. Verses 22 and 23 talk about how the the fallen man in his sin, in his fleshly focus, chooses to serve false gods, and it's stupid false gods. He ignores the way the creation itself testifies to God, and he worships the creation itself instead. He acts as though Calling something his God or treating something as his God makes it divine. When in fact it just makes him a fool. Young people understand that that's what's happening. When we, what we see there in verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And you think well people don't do that anymore. Sure they do. That's what radical environmentalism is serving the world at the expense of man, deifying the world and calling man a scourge and a plague that needs to be removed. That's what people do when they religiously embrace, as American science often does, religiously embrace evolution. They cast off the God who made the world and they claim that the world made itself, that the world is a self-generating God. That's what they do when they embrace humanism. And they make man the measure of all things. They put man on the throne. And they cast God on the ash heap of alleged superstition. It's folly. Because in their hearts, every one of them knows that it's a lie. Every one of them knows that they're denying the only truth that could matter. They're choosing to worship the creation rather than the one who made it all. It's rebellion and it permeates their life. And so God gives them over to that folly. He allows them to embrace the lies they use to deny Him. He gives them the freedom to use that rebellion to deepen their condemnation. He he lets them make fools of themselves. Because deep down they know what they're doing. And they give themselves over to it. He points out in verses uh, 20, what is it, 26, 25 and 26, 27, talks about homosexuality, not because that's an inherently worse sin than any other, but because in it we see the, the rebellion of this sin. We see this rebellion of putting off God and choosing to worship the creation more clearly than we do in most sins. Understand, human sexuality was meant as a a demonstration, an image of the love of God for his creation. And for for man, really. That's why Ephesians 5 talks about how husband and wife are a demonstration of the love of Christ for his church and the devotion of the church for Christ, right? And that's what human sexuality is meant to do. God has made man like him. Not the same as him, but like him. We reflect Him. 
We do the, we're meant to do the work that he created us to do, but he is also other than us. There are incommunicable attributes that we cannot take hold of. And human sexuality, rightly worked out, demonstrates that. The love of one for another who is like but different, right? Who complements, who completes. But homosexuality is the opposite. It is a love of like for like and a rejection of the one who is other. It is a a self-love lived out. A, A love of the mirror. An idolatry of oneself. That's why he highlights it here. To demonstrate that this is how far man has fallen. That he puts off what God clearly designed as good and fulfilling in order to openly love himself. And he doesn't stop there. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he gives this laundry list of sins that permeate life. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Notice how much of that is centered in the heart, in the attitude, in the desire to rebel. Sometimes the things they do don't look inherently bad, but the reasons which drive them are absolutely wicked. Please understand that this is the story of all of mankind. It is not a condemnation of those liberals over there. It is not a condemnation of those, you know, primitive peoples. No, no. The people of every status, of every nation, of every race, of every family, this is their story. It's comprehensive. It fills the heart. It clouds the mind. It pollutes the hand of man. And by the power inherent to us, we cannot and we will not escape this corruption. Now, that's not an excuse. Please understand. All of us know better. And freely, left to our own devices, we will choose it anyway. But we need to understand. This is where we start. Verse 18. In unrighteousness we suppress the truth about God. Verse 19. Even though the truth about God is plain to us. Verse 20. Therefore we are without excuse. But, verse 32, we don't care. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In fact, when our catechism asks, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? The only answer we can give, as long as we're looking at ourselves, is, yep. That's our misery. And Adam's sin is the soil in which it grows. So is there then no hope? Nope. Not in us. Not from our hands. Remember Romans 8 verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. And therefore those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That from the start was us. Conceived with a poisoned nature. However, God and God alone is able to fix what we've broken. 
He alone has that power. And so the final thing we need to see here, and we, we're just going to touch on it tonight, but we have to touch on it because this is the hope. This is the good. We are recovered by a powerful Savior. Answer 8 of our catechism does say that we are totally unable to do good. But then it says, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. That's what we need, to be born again. To have a completely new start. A completely new origin that comes to us from without us. When we were born, we didn't have anything to do with bringing that about. And likewise, when we're born again, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't arise from our initiative. It comes from God. He must change our hearts. He must enlighten our minds. He must provide the forgiveness and the righteousness we need and impute it all to us. God alone is able to save us from this mess into which Adam plunged us, which we took up wholeheartedly. Only God can fix it, and He does. Romans 8 brings that bad news, as we've seen, but also stunningly good news. The bad news, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But then the good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, and He does, if you believe what the Bible says is true, if you believe that the work of Jesus was sufficient to save men from their sins, and if you trust Him to do that for you, if you believe that, if that's your conviction, if that's your trust, then that could only come from the Spirit of God. And if that Spirit is in you, then verse 10 Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That, my friends, is the only hope, the only comfort, the only escape that we can know. But in mercy he has given it to us. Of ourselves, Romans 1 tells us we can only manage to sin, deepening our misery, earning death. But Christ can turn us in an infinitely better direction. Just before what we read there, Paul tells us this. It's like he's insulating us, strengthening us for what's about to come. He's going to give us almost three full chapters of the ugliness of where we start. But first he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is our hope. This is our escape. We must believe the gospel. That Jesus suffered and died for the sake of what we did, for, for forgiving that, for paying that debt. That He lived a life of perfect righteousness and holiness, which is imputed to us when we believe. And that that is utterly and entirely sufficient to cover over every single one of our sins and rebellions. If you believe that, then no matter how ugly it was, that place where you started, no matter how deep the corruption that you inherited from Adam... You can have peace with God. You can have life eternal in the presence of God. You can, be, you can be sons and daughters of your heavenly Father. 
But you must know, we all must know, it didn't come from us. Not something we earned, chose, decided, accomplished. He did it, and he alone. Man's misery arose from the sin of Adam. We need to know that. We need to understand that we cannot escape it on our own. But we also need to know that Jesus did everything to draw us out and to give us life. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we deserved of ourselves your wrath. When we, when we hear Romans 1, when we see the ugliness of the sin that dwells within, we recognize that that's true of every one of us. That's where we would naturally go of ourselves. And we're humbled to the dust, Lord. We know from the stupid decisions we've made, the foolish choices we've embraced, we know that that's speaking of us. But we also know that Jesus did everything to save us. And we so rejoice that it doesn't depend on what we've done, on what we accomplish, on what we add. Thank you for that. Teach us to trust in Him. And if there are any here tonight who do not know Christ, who do not yet trust Him, Lord, work in their hearts. Show them the folly of trusting in themselves and lead them to the foot of your throne eager for the the mercy that only you can provide. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we understand the corruption into which we were born, the misery of our sin, we see that we can't come to Christ saying, I've gotten this far, can you get me the rest of the way? We can only come empty-handed pleading for what He alone can give. So let's do that. Singing together number 424, Just As I Am. Thank you. 
Our offering this evening is for the Institute of Reform Biblical Counseling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us in your word the tools that we need to address sin and brokenness and dysfunction and hurt and grief. We pray that you would use IRBC to equip your people to minister to one another in a way that leads them back to that word and to the healing and the help and the deliverance that it provides. And grant that the offerings that we bring be used unto your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Number 120 is our offering song this evening. It's a reminder of our calling to give thanks for the deliverance God has given. We'll sing all the stanzas of 120.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.